Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 182, and today's guest is Bill Lettingham, CEO of Fairwinds. Bill has a knack for noticing market opportunities where a company can scale. As either a founder or executive, the majority of the companies he's been involved in have exited. We discuss this topic in terms of how he decides where to focus his time and how he evaluates the potential market need. Earlier in his career, he was a founding team member of Speechworks, which went public, merged with Scansoft, and later became known as Nuance. Another more recent success story was Black Duck Software, where he was CTO and Executive Vice President of Engineering. The company was acquired by Synopsys. He is now the CEO of Fairwinds, the Kubernetes enablement company. The company's software and services enable organizations to run secure, reliable, and scalable Kubernetes infrastructure. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a journey through Bill's career and all the different companies, the background story on Fairwinds, which was formed via the acquisition of Reactive Ops, and all the details on how they are helping their customers, what is Kubernetes, and why is it so popular these days, advice for founders on figuring out their go-to-market strategy, Bill's thoughts on how to build a career path to a CEO position, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It is hard to believe that we are almost up to 200 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built quite an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies. Each episode also includes lots of great advice for you to follow too. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com backslash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Bill. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Well, hi, Keith. Uh, Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because, um, you know, in preparation for our conversation, when I was going through your background, I realized Bill has a deep history of building successful companies in the Boston tech scene, lots of names that I recognize. So we're going to talk about that. But what I realized is, you know, you've had this uh, track record of success being the founding team of lots of successful companies. So how do you decide which, you know, companies need to be created, you know, with the technology that has longstanding opportunities of value? So it's almost like, how, how do you decide where to spend your time? Yeah, well, it's really a combination of different factors that play into it. You know, I guess, you know, from my own personal uh, perspective, I want to work on technologies that I find personally interesting. So uh, technologies that I think can be transformative, that can lead to some very cool use cases and applications, and then try to kind of combine that with uh, market needs that exist out there or, you know, the ability to solve pain points that are acute enough so that customers will be willing to shell over, you know, dollars to solve those pay points. So it's really kind of, uh, you know, matching market need, uh, value proposition with the underlying technology. And then kind of layered on top of that is just, you know, looking at trends in the area and how will those trends help or hurt in terms of our ability to create a company around that. So, you know, timing does play a key part of it in terms of you want to make sure that the technology is ready to solve the problem. At the same time, the market is starting to take off and demand solutions in that space. If you're too early on one side or the other, that's when you tend to run into problems where you either don't have enough capital 
to last or the technology takes too long to really bring to fruition and get it working to the point where you can actually solve a market need and or pain point. Now you have a ex- lot of experience as an investor too. So is it almost like a similar approach when you're, you're making an investment in, into a company? Yeah, no, very much the same thing. I mean, what from an investor side, you know, you're really looking at the team and their ability to work together and kind of solve problems and their passion and, you know, how do they think about, you know, the space and creating a company around that? You know, there, there has to be a, a great deal of passion there where they, they feel like, you know, this is a problem that really needs to be solved. And they feel passionate enough that they, you know, feel like they're the team to go off and solve this problem. And then you want to make sure they have enough experience to actually be able to pull that off um, and, you know, have the ability to do that. So, well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, let's talk about your background. Like, where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Wow, going all the way back. Yeah, way back. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, all the way back, I was uh, born on a farm in western Nebraska. Um, wow, really? And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, at age two, I convinced my parents to move to Colorado. So that was my first good decision. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we uh, we moved to a suburb of, Den- of Denver called Littleton, and that's really where I grew up. And um, it was, you know, very early days of computing back then. So I was lucky enough in high school, we had access to a computer. We still had the old punch cards, you know, to program with. And so, you know, nothing like a personal computer or anything you could kind of, you know, uh, really leverage today. And so, but that's really where I kind of developed an interest in technology, uh, in math and science, in engineering, et cetera. And then, from there, I made the decision to uh, fortunately go to Stanford and, and take advantage of an opportunity there. Uh, it was interesting back then when you know I was looking at colleges, unlike today where you know all of uh, our kids you know went on multiple college tours and got a good sense of what it would be like to go to school there. Uh, I pretty much went to Stanford sight unseen. So I had gotten into Stanford, MIT, and a few other schools but I had never gone on any college tour. So I had no idea what to expect once I got there. And you just show up on campus. <laughs> yeah, very lucky. And, you know, it was a great experience uh, that, that I was able to take advantage of. What was the culture like then at Stanford? Was it as, I mean, entrepreneurship runs rampant through Stanford now, but, you know, was there, because there still was a, a, you know, an emerging population of great companies being built. Yeah, no, um, it still kind of existed. It was in its infancy, really, but within the engineering department, uh, Hewlett and Packard certainly had an influence on you know a lot of uh, uh, what was going on within the school, and it was kind of you know the early heyday, if you will, of entrepreneurship and Silicon Valley and uh, companies being formed around kind of the HP ecosphere, if you will. And so it was, it was just a great time to be there. Um, it was really before kind of a lot of the, the venture community had started taking off. And so it was a little bit more of kind of, you know, a lo- little bit larger organizations that you were looking at, you know, coming out of school. There weren't as many opportunities to get into early stage startups back then. But, you know, that certainly kind of took hold and, and evolved from there. Well, you mentioned HP. And is that where you started your career? 
Yeah, so uh, I was uh, lucky enough to get uh, an opportunity to go to HP coming out of Stanford. Worked as a manufacturing systems engineer, um, which is uh, kind of, it was an interesting first position coming out of school where um, at the time, uh, HP and other organizations were trying to get much more competitive in the manufacturing space, you know, primarily as a response to what was going on in Japan. And so um, at the time, there were a number of uh, concepts around just-in-time uh, development and delivery, TQM or total quality management, uh, et cetera. So kind of you know, looking at across the organization, how was HP going to implement some of these approaches? And you know, so I had the opportunity to kind of go around to a number of different divisions across the country and look at how they were uh, manufacturing various products and then look to see how we could combine best practices from across these different divisions and really kind of bring it up to the corporate level and then send it back down across HP. So, you know, great first position coming out of school really gave me great exposure to uh, the organization, how business was done, combination of manufacturing, engineering, et cetera. And at the time, you know, HP was still kind of in its heyday. HP Labs was right there. So got, got the ability to kind of look at what was uh, being developed in the labs, et cetera. So, you know, love that as kind of a, a first position out of, out of college. And then why'd you decide to go to B school? Um, so that was something I had always uh, thought about. You know, I knew eventually I wanted to go off and start a company if I had the opportunity. And so it was really looking to kind of fill out my educational background and complement what I had on the engineering side with also getting a business degree. So I had uh, gotten into a, a few business schools, you know, two years out of college. I actually decided to postpone a year, spend another year at HP, and then decided uh, it was time to go back to, to business school at that point. Got it. Okay, so after graduating from HBS, product marketing at Stratus. So talk about that and what, what, why product marketing coming out of uh, your MBA? Yeah, so um, you know, product management or product marketing was, you know, I, I saw that as really kind of a great way to learn about a number of different functions within the company. And if you will, you're kind of acting as a mini GM in terms of kind of bringing all the pieces together to either launch a product and or develop a new product and or kind of continue to push, you know, existing products forward in, in the market. And so a lot of what you have to do is kind of learn the different pieces of the organization. And in a lot of cases, you really don't have direct authority over the resources. You kind of have to learn management techniques around how do I work and put together a team cross-functionally within the organization and then kind of, you know, beg and conjole them to kind of, you know, do what's needed to do to kind of bring that product to market and make that product successful. Well, now let's, let's switch gears because now we're going to get into some of the you know, founding team stories that you've been a part of. Uh, you know, one of you know, the first one being SpeechWorks, which I don't know if Boston gets enough credit for the amount of you know, voice recognition innovation that Boston created with SpeechWorks, ScanSoft, you know, now those combined entities are nuanced. Like, there's just like a tremendous amount of expertise that's been developed over several years of that, you know, pushing that industry of where it is today. 
Yeah, so that was an interesting one in that um, uh, we started SpeechWorks based on technology out of MIT that we've licensed. So at the time, there were really kind of three research uh, groups uh, developing a lot of the underlying uh, speech recognition and natural language understanding technology. So it was really, at the time, MIT, Stanford, and Carnegie Mellon. And so we were kind of you know, lucky enough to uh, you know, be able to leverage technology from MIT. One of the other co-founders of the company, Mike Phillips, uh, he was a research scientist at MIT and had you know, developed a lot of the technology personally. And so as we kind of formed that company, uh, we put a license agreement in place with MIT to get access to the technology. And then we went out, you know, put, put a team around it and started a company and kind of, you know, raised venture capital, figured out, you know, how we were going to uh, uh, create a business plan around it. What areas do we want to uh, go after in terms of, you know, market opportunity, market need, where we could really leverage uh, the speech recognition technology? And so, you know, it was my first uh, startup. And I think, you know, we made a, certainly a number of mistakes along the way. Uh, in retrospect, you know, we were very lucky to kind of, you know, be able to pull it all together and make it successful. But, you know, it was kind of a, a, a classic case of technology in search of a solution early on, where we had this very cool technology, but we hadn't really identified the pressing market need where we could, you know, take advantage of that. And so um, we were able to kind of, you know, uh, figure out um, uh, applications and use cases around uh, tele telephony-based transactions and services. So, you know, over the telephone, when you call up and get uh, access to either flight status or stock quotes or those types of information, you know, we looked at where we could automate a lot of those transactions and services with the speech technology and then allow people to focus on the more value-added portion of the transactions, more complex transactions. So it was looking at where we could kind of offload a bunch of rote work from humans, you know, save companies money, and then allow them to, you know, redirect those folks to more, you know, value-added uh, uh, services in terms of, you know, what their offerings are. Well, it must have been challenging because this was more of an enterprise sale, and then you had to convince a market that this was going to help them become more efficient, save money, you know, leverage their resources for more value add for their consumers or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So, you know, we were lucky enough to identify a couple of early customers that really kind of served as partners and helped us really promote the technology. So if I remember correctly, we had uh, Bell South, United Airlines, E-Trade, all as kind of some of our early uh, customers that we could then build upon and reference and, and leverage in terms of expanding our market opportunity. So, you know, that was another thing I think we did right in terms of finding early champions around the technology and not just, you know, you know large organizations that had a, a good name associated with them, but people within those organizations that were really gonna champion us and champion our solutions within those companies and help us drive adoption of the technology. And I think, you know, that's another learning, you know, that I've had throughout multiple companies. It is very important to find early champions for your product or service that are going to really help you build the market uh, around the company as well.
great first startup because eventually the company did go public and then it did merge with ScanSoft and that's what ultimately created what is now known as Nuance, right? Yeah, so you know, we were lucky enough to do an IPO uh, right at kind of the, the tail end of the dot-com boom. Uh, I think we, we went public in August of 2000. So right before timing. <laughs> the whole market cratered. So uh, it was very interesting. We saw our, our, our stock price soar. You know, we had a multi-billion dollar value to the company, but then it quickly came crashing back down to a more realistic level after that. And then, yeah, about a year, year and a half later, we did end up selling uh, the company to ScanSoft, which is now Nuance. And you've really seen kind of nuance go out and acquire other uh, speech technology companies. The big one on the West Coast at the time was Nuance Communications. After they acquired Nuance, they rebranded the company um, to Nuance in, in general. So what did you do after that? Uh, so after SpeechWorks, you know, after we were acquired by uh, uh, ScanSoft, uh, you know, my forte is really kind of earlier stage startups and, you know, I had less desire to go back to working for a larger organization at that point. So I went out and, you know, looked for uh, other startups that I could get associated with, came across a company called Virtual Iron uh, that had some very interesting technology in the virtualization space. Uh, so this was kind of early days of virtualization technology, you know, obviously VMware, turned into, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in that space. Uh, but at the time, there were a few other players, including uh, Virtual Iron. Uh, there was another uh, open source project called Zen. So it was kind of, you know, interesting technology where, you know, I saw the benefit that virtualization could provide in terms of driving up uh, the utilization of underlying hardware resources, uh, which, you know, at the time where you had to really you know, deploy one application on a single server, a lot of the compute cycles really went underutilized. You know, uh, on average, mo you know, most servers were only about 20% utilized because you had to kind of you know, have enough excess capacity within the server so that as the workload increased and you know, to handle peaks and variations in the kind of the daily workload, a lot of times, uh, you know, a lot of the compute resources uh, just sat there idle. And so through virtualization and being able to run multiple applications and virtual machines on a single physical server, you could really drive up utilization and, and bring down costs. And so, you know, interesting space. Uh, uh, I was there a year, uh, had a little bit of a falling out with the, uh, one of the founders who had been acting as a CEO there uh, when I joined, he was trying to uh, hire a CEO and then ended up, you know, still a year later, he didn't really want to kind of give up the reins. And so decided it was time to kind of move on because, you know, we really needed a little bit of a change in management, I felt, in terms of, you know, kind of our strategy and where we were going within the space. So from there, you moved on to uh, Avalier. Yeah. So uh, that was an interesting company where kind of, recognize the need for helping companies in their use of uh, information and helping them kind of categorize and understand what is sensitive information being used throughout the organization 
and then getting visibility and controls around how that information is, is used within the company. So various use cases around helping companies protect their IP, making sure that uh, they didn't inadvertently attach sensitive documents to an email going outside the company, et cetera. So kind of early days of information and data security. There we, you know, we were doing very well. We had raised a series A, went to raise a series B, had everything lined up. And then um, the challenge we ran into, and you know, here, here again, another mistake and learning along the way, we had only kind of raised funding from one venture capital firm when we did the series A. We had them lined up to do the series B as well. And then uh, the venture partner at the firm who was their only partner in the software space decided to leave the firm two weeks before we were set to close on our series B. So, Lost your champion. So, you know, basically the funding fell through at the final hour. And so we kind of quickly had to find a buyer for the company. And so we were lucky enough to uh, sell the company to Iron Mountain or it was Iron Mountain Digital at the time. And so, you know, we found a home for the team and we're able to kind of, you know, take the te technology forward, at least from that perspective. Now, what I think is interesting about your background is, you know, we talked about you know, your experience coming out of B-School, product management, product marketing, then you were heading up, you know, marketing and uh, business development at some of the companies that we were just referencing. And, you know, then you switched over to head up engineering and become more of a CTO. So I think it's interesting that that's kind of a, a career path that you were in different functional areas throughout your career. So, um, you know, the next step, Digital Guardian, or I think when you joined, they were still known as Vertisys, right? Right, right. That's when you were like the CTO of that company. Yeah. So um, <laughs> for better or worse, I can never hold down a job for any period of time. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I've been fortunate enough to kind of, you know, uh, be able to kind of play different roles in different organizations based on kind of our need at the time. And so even going back to SpeechWorks, you know, I started off on the marketing and biz dev side. And then as we try to uh, take our technology and build it more into products and move from kind of uh, one-off solutions for customers that we had developed and really turn it into a core product technology, I kind of flipped over and was running uh, product development at that point. And then in some of these other companies, here again, I've kind of moved back and forth between marketing, product management, engineering, depending on kind of the need and opportunity I saw at the time in terms of where I could add value to the organization. And so, you know, I've been fortunate from a, a career perspective. It's allowed me to kind of get a, a broad sense across the organization of you know, all the different pieces that go into making a company successful and having a good view as to what's required to kind of, you know, bridge, you know, functions within the organization, really drive uh, a more meaningful engagement across the team, making sure all the different functions are aligned and that we can, uh, you know, achieve what we're going after from a goal perspective. Got it. Now with, um, you know, then Black Duck, which I, you know, they were acquired just a couple years ago, right? Yeah. So um, when I joined, uh, I believe it was back in 2014, 2015, 
Uh, the challenge at the time, uh, Black Duck had uh, a great amount of early success around companies in the use of open source software. Um, but it was really, you know, the primary driving use case was around helping companies understand what open source they were using and then what licenses were attached to those open source projects and then helping them comply with those different license terms. Mm -hmm. And so um, early on, uh, there were, you know, certain types of open source licenses like GPL that had fairly restrictive or onerous terms that in essence, if you were to use software that had a GPL license, you were forced to kind of make your own proprietary software where that GPL code was embedded. You had to make that available as open source. Mm -hmm. And so this obviously worried a number of corporations where uh, they were concerned that engineers would pull in these projects with a GPL license and then inadvertently have to make their software open source and you know essentially turn over their proprietary code to the open source community. So you know very very early uh, interesting use case around open source. And then when uh, I joined Black Duck, the challenge at the time, you know, the growth had kind of slowed and we were looking for new opportunities to kind of leverage our technology into uh, other areas and other use cases. And based on uh, my experience at Avalier and Digital Guardian, I saw a strong need to uh, look at how we could apply the technology uh, to the world of security around the use of open source. And as more and more open source is being used in the market, uh, the challenge a number of companies had was because they didn't know really what open source they had in use or what versions, they also weren't aware of known security vulnerabilities that existed in a lot of that open source software. And so here again, developers would pull in the open source into an application, start using it, and unbeknownst to them or the company, there was a known vulnerability there that a hacker could potentially exploit and take advantage of to get access to the application, the application data, uh, you know, the environment, et cetera. And so there were a couple kind of early, uh, highly visible uh, open source vulnerabilities. You may have heard of Heartbleed, which was a vulnerability in OpenSSL that compromised the security around, you know, encrypting. Uh, data transmission. Um, there were some other well-known uh, vulnerabilities uh, having to do with web application components that a number of the financial uh, services firms were leveraging that ended up resulting in, in data breaches uh, that were pretty high profile at the time. And so, you know, the use case then that we went after at Black Duck was how do we kind of layer on security as part of, of our value proposition and we were able to, to really kind of leverage that into a new product offering uh, and really get the growth up. We tripled revenue over four years and then eventually sold the company to Synopsys, which was uh, building an application security group within the company. Uh, so they had a set of solutions for scanning proprietary code, identifying vulnerabilities in the proprietary code, and then being able to complement that with uh, our product, which uh, enabled them to also understand vulnerabilities in the open source software 
it provided a nice holistic solution for customers. I think the fact that Black Deck was such a great success story is a testament to A, the team, obviously the team figured out where's the next opportunity to triple revenue, but the investors too, it seems like they were very patient too, to wait until it finally got to the point where, okay, this company, it, you know, it's time to see if there's an opportunity for an exit. Yeah. So uh, very lucky to have, as you said, patient investors. You know, when I joined, the company was about 10 years old. Uh, General Catalyst was one of the investors, you know, Larry Bond. He was, he was a great kind of proponent of what we were doing and was very patient and kind of saw the long-term potential and wanted to kind of see it through before, you know, jumping to an exit, uh, if you will. And so I think, uh, you know, the patience of the investors had a lot to do with our uh, ultimate uh, ability to be successful and kind of, you know, make sure that we could fully realize the value there that uh, we were able to create and then and see it to a good exit. Well, let's talk about Fairwind. So the company that uh, you're currently working on and, um, you know, there's this term out there, Kubernetes, that yeah. <laughs> I hear all the time now. And I'm starting to learn what, more and more of what it is. But if in case people are listening, they're like, what is Kubernetes? What is that? And then, of course, you know, what is Fairwinds? Yeah, so at a high level, uh, think of it as uh, uh, cloud infrastructure. So it's really a technology for helping companies move their applications to the cloud. Uh, you may have heard of a technology called Docker or Docker containers. Uh, really what that technology is, it's a way of packaging and deploying applications. Uh, it's really kind of a, a next generation of virtual virtualization technology, if you will. So rather than kind of putting an application on a virtual machine and deploying that, you kind of break the application into piece parts. You package those as services within a container, and then you really deploy those services in containers on a runtime environment, a la Kubernetes. And so initially there were a couple of other uh, runtime or orchestration environments for containers, but Kubernetes has really become the de facto standard in that space now at this point. It was technology originally developed by Google and then made available as open source. And you've now seen all the major cloud platforms, AWS, you know, Microsoft, Google, all adopt Kubernetes and have you know, offerings for you know, uh, Kubernetes-based platforms. Likewise, you know, the uh, acquisition of Red Hat by IBM, a lot of that had to do with their Kubernetes-based platform called OpenShift. And so a lot of, you know, the large tech players really see this as kind of a, a key way in which applications will be de uh, developed and deployed going forward. And Kubernetes is a key enabling kind of run tech, runtime technology, if you will, for running these containerized applications in the cloud, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And how did the company come together? Yeah, so it was interesting. It was an existing company. Um, the company at this point is about five years old. Uh, original name of the company was Reactive Ops. And they were really focused on helping companies around, you know, this uh, journey to DevOps, Agile, using containers, and then using Kubernetes. So there's a number of kind of key trends within software development. 
uh, all with the aim of kind of helping companies, you know, move to the digital economy, you know, create software applications and services to kind of redefine industries. And the way they're building these applications and services, they're heavily leveraging open source technology, and they're trying to you know, put in place a development lifecycle and a set of technologies that help them really kind of speed to market, you know, new versions of the software, new applications, et cetera. So the whole kind of goal between, behind Agile and being quickly able to respond to market needs combined with DevOps or this pairing between development operations and kind of shortening the, the time it takes to develop new functionality and get it deployed uh, into an operational per, or production environment, those are kind of all going hand in hand in terms of helping companies on their digital journey, uh, allowing them to bring new services to market faster. And so Reactive Ops, you know, had a lot of expertise around DevOps, containers, uh, this notion of uh, what's called CI/CD or continuous integration, continuous deployment. So um, think of continuous integration as every time a developer checks in a new feature, uh, that gets integrated into the code base, the code gets rebuilt, it gets retested, and then it's ready to deploy. And then the second piece of that, continuous deployment or CD, is to then take that newly built version of the application and get it deployed into a production environment. And so containers, i.e. a way of packaging the application in a way that makes it very easy to hand it off to production or to operations, combined with having Kubernetes in the runtime environment that kind of bridges the gap um, across the spectrum and helps companies move more quickly to getting new functionality new functionality to the market uh, more rapidly. And so Reactive Ops had a lot of kind of core capabilities around CI, CD, DevOps, Agile, et cetera, and was helping organizations through this journey of kind of uh, getting their applications built for the digital world and kind of move to these newer cloud native technologies. The original founder decided he wanted to go off and do other things uh, uh, a couple of years ago. And so he had the company up for sale. Uh, we came across the company uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, there were two kind of uh, primary uh, folks uh, that were kind of leading the charge. Um, actually, Rob Ketterson, who was one of our investors at Black Duck, he kind of found the opportunity. He then brought, uh, brought Bob Brennan into uh, the deal as well. So Bob had been CEO at Veracode. And I had competed against Bob when we were at Black Duck. We had a little bit of overlap in the application security space. So I knew you know, Bob from uh, those days. And then they both brought me in to help with due diligence around the deal. Given that um, at Black Duck, as part of my role as CTO, I had led the charge to re-architect, containerize our applications, move them eventually to Kubernetes. And, you know, while it was all great technology once we got there, it was more challenging than we had originally anticipated in terms of going out and getting Kubernetes and getting it running and putting together all the various pieces that are needed to really make it kind of production grade or production quality. 
And so we were able to, to get there eventually, but it probably took me nine to 12 months, longer than expected. I had to go out and try to hire a lot of expertise, which is frankly very hard to find in the market. So it took me a while to build the team and really get to the point where we were production grade with our applications. And so as I was looking at kind of, you know, the technology and skills that Reactive Ops had, the value proposition definitely resonated with me as a CTO in terms of my own challenges that I had gone through at Black Duck. And so I then got involved with Bob and Rob, you know, decided to invest my money along with them and a bunch of other kind of uh, private individual investors that we um, brought together to fund the company and then kind of put together the team, acquired the company back in March of last year and have taken it from there. And right now, kind of our, our key challenge that we're going through is, you know, how do we leverage all this expertise and core capability the team's built? And really from a business model, look at how do we, you know, convert that to ongoing recurring revenue through the form of subscription-based managed services and software that we can offer as solutions to customers along their Kubernetes and container journey. You know, so we've kind of repositioned the company around Fairwinds, you know, with the, the name change and then really a focus on helping companies with their Kubernetes enablement and their journey uh, to this new world of cloud native technology. So where's the company now in terms of like, you know, number of employees and, and growth plans ahead? Yeah, so since acquiring the company a year ago, we, we've uh, more than doubled the team. So right now we're around 50 employees. Uh, we had, you know, very aggressive uh, growth plans for the year prior to COVID, and uh, we've had to retrench a little bit and scale back those plans. Um, so we will still grow this year, but not the uh, the two X that we had originally anticipated. But just curious, because it's almost like we're in an inflection point now. Uh, you know, we're recording this in June. And I'm starting to feel there's momentum again, where people are starting to realize that you know there's business that's still being done out there, and we still need to grow, and we're probably going to still hiring. Like the hiring on venture fizz is starting to slowly pick back up. Yeah, no, and we're definitely seeing that as well. It was interesting in March. You know, all of our new business pretty much just froze. Everyone yeah. said we can't make a decision. Everything just right stopped. Now. The <laughs> yeah. world has stopped. Yeah, you know, we don't know what's going on. Let's push out the decision and re-engage in a couple of months once we have more clarity. Um, on our kind of existing business, we were able to continue to drive very high you know, net retention rates and all that business went very well. But it was just on the new business side where people didn't have clarity around what the future held. They just kind of put the brakes on. You know, over the last month, we've started to see kind of companies re-engage and we've actually been able to close a number of new deals just over the last couple of weeks. So we are seeing the market start to return. Um, and you know, hopefully that trend will continue, especially as things continue to reopen. And I think longer term, we actually see a number of opportunities coming out of this where you know, we see a number of companies now thinking about you know, their strategy going forward, the move to remote working, how do they need to kind of push ahead in terms of moving applications to the cloud, et cetera. So we do think longer term, this will actually be a growth driver for the company, uh, but we just wanted to make sure that we had sufficient capital to kind of get through this 
no matter how long it lasted. And then, you know, second half of the year, we'll kind of resume hiring, you know, as we see the business start to come back. That's awesome. Well, knock on wood. I'm, we're all we're all rooting for the same outcome of uh, exactly. business back to. to yeah, no, it's certainly been a challenge, you know, for yeah. a number of organizations. And thankfully, our our existing customers have been able to get through it for the most part. We did have a, cu- a couple of customers in the travel space, et cetera, where we kind of had to work with them and help them get through this as well. But you know, yeah, you know, hopefully as things start to recover, you know, we'll all you know be able to kind of get back into the swing of things. So, so what advice would you give to a founder on, uh, you know, advice on get, a go-to-market strategy, right? That's a, sometimes a very tricky part of being a founder and leading a company. Uh, you've got an you know, interesting technology. Maybe you've got some early adopter customers, but how, like, how do you advise someone on their go-to-market strategy? Yeah, so, you know, every situation is a little bit unique, but there are certainly kind of, you know, higher level, you know, um, values, if you will, in terms of kind of a approach. And so, you know, in terms of kind of setting up your go-to-market organization, I would first and foremost make sure that, you know, sales and marketing are tightly aligned in terms of, you know, all the motions around go-to-market. Um, because you really want to avoid the situation where marketing says, oh, we've, you know, developed all these leads, dumps them onto sales, and sales says, oh, you know, these are all crap. Yeah, I can't make sense of them. Um, and so just up front, you know, getting an understanding, getting common definitions in place and having kind of that, that uh, go-to-market motion between sales and marketing tightly aligned so that you can take advantage then of feedback you're getting from the market, from the early customers and kind of working with the product team to make sure you understand you know, adoption rates and usage rates and kind of having other kind of key, you know, metrics in place to understand, you know, is it resonating? Is it not being able to quickly adapt as you're getting that feedback? Because nothing ever works as planned early on. Mm -hmm. And your ability to adapt and kind of, you know, add features, delete features, you know, those are all really critical to kind of you know figuring out your your product market fit and then ultimately your your value to market fit as you go to kind of commercialize what you've built and making sure that there's value there uh, that the customers and, and the market sees that they're willing to pay for. You know, if if um, you know, like we talked about your career and how you've led different functions in a company and, and now you're CEO of Fairwinds. Like what advice would you give to an uh, aspiring CEO? You may be a freshly minted MBA grad that, you know, is like someday I want to, you know, lead a company as CEO. Like what, what career advice would you give that person? Yeah. So really, you know, get as much experience as you can prior to jumping in and hopefully having a broad brush experience across different functional areas. So you understand kind of all the ingredients that go into the mix and then as you build your team, you'll know kind of what to look for in terms of identifying top quality sales leaders, marketing leaders, product leaders, because end of the day, your success is really dependent on the team you build and how well you can integrate the pieces to kind of complement your own strengths and weaknesses. And it is really kind of this, this team model that you have to kind of go after, especially early on. And then as the company grows, kind of knowing when to layer in uh, more process 
and making sure that as you're in this high growth mode, everybody's aligned across the organization. The goals are clear, you know, everybody buys into those goals. And then, you know, um, I found it's, it's important to just constantly reinforce that. You kind of can't take it for granted that everybody's on the same page. And the, even though as an exec team, you're meeting, you know, weekly or even more often, a lot of times, you know, folks will start to go off in different directions unless you're periodically kind of checking in on the strategy and making sure there's tight alignment across the goals. And then, you know, getting that communicated out to the rest of the organization so that, you know, ideally you want to have an organization where you can trust people to do the right thing within their own roles. You have to give them the context for making good decisions as they're going about doing their, their day-to-day jobs so they understand the bigger picture and how their piece fits in. Got it. Okay. What about any uh, podcasts or book recommendations that you would uh, recommend out there? Uh, that's a good one. Um, there's a few that, you know, obviously uh, there are in our space that I kind of follow. So there's uh, one that's called, you know, Screaming in the Cloud, which is an entertaining podcast around cloud technology. Um, there's a more technical one, uh, a, a Kubernetes podcast from Google that I follow. And then a few of the more esoteric ones I've gotten into lately, um, The Rabbit Hole and uh, uh, Crazy Genius. I don't know if you've come across either of those, but those are you know, fairly entertaining kind of takes at you know, uh, technology and where things are going. I, I haven't heard that one yet, so I will definitely check those out. Those sound really cool. Um, how about outside of work? What else do you like to do outside of work? Um, so at this point, our, our kids are, are growing and out of the house. And so my wife and I have a little bit more time uh, to spend together and, and spend on things. But, you know, actually, um, you know, with COVID, we, we had two of our kids kind of return home uh, to live with, with us during this whole thing. So that was kind of a benefit, um, if you will, of the whole kind of lockdown and, and quarantine process. Um, but outside of that, you know, um, there's a, a couple of organizations uh, that, that we support pretty closely with our, our time and money. Uh, uh, organization called City Year, another organization called Year Up that we're, we're pretty closely involved with. Um, one of our uh, kids, our son, is at Duke, and so we've gotten involved with the Duke Parents Committee, which has been a lot of fun there. And then uh, just, you know, outside of that, you know, uh, I am very, or I try to stay very active physically. I think a lot of that goes back to kind of growing up in Colorado. So, I, you know, spend a lot of time running, biking, skiing, et cetera. Um, gives me a kind of good perspective and time to think outside of work, uh, just, you know, through, through the physical activity, et cetera. That's great. Well, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional background and all the great companies that you've been a part of. And, you know, looking forward to Fairwinds being the next uh, anchor tech company in Boston. Well, thanks, Keith. Uh, very much appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thank you for, for your time today as well. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. 
Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.